Welcome, friends and listeners, to the next episode of Aftermath. Be sure to follow us on social media for updates, decrees from the Shadow Council, and important dates in Aftermath history. You can find us on Twitter at Group Fire Pit, on Instagram at Fire Pit Creative Group Official, on Facebook at facebook.com slash firepitcreativegroup, and on YouTube at Fire Pit Creative Group. You can also email us at firepitcreativegroup at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's the next episode. Enjoy! Episode 19, Down by the River. Esther was born on Israel's coast, in a small town near Haifa in 2045. Tensions in the region were relatively calm at that time. The proxy wars between the major global factions had mostly moved beyond Israel's borders and, other than the occasional terrorist attack, the Israeli homeland was at relative peace. Then, the Dalai Lama was kidnapped. A group allegedly composed of Syrian revolutionaries claimed responsibility and held the Buddhist religious figure for ransom. The demands were outrageous. Rescue attempts were made for more than 100 days, until a failed attempt by Californian mercenaries was exposed by the Russian state media. No further attempts at recovery were made. The Dalai Lama was murdered live on national television, and despite growing evidence suggesting that the kidnapping was a ruse orchestrated by the People's Republic of China, Israel and its Western allies kept their fingers pointed at Syria and its Iranian benefactors. Tensions flared, reigniting old conflicts. I remember it well, Castro told the elderly woman. Esther folded her hands in front of her, looking down. I was too young to understand why he left, but I remember my father being sent away. He was in the defense forces. He was killed in the siege of Damascus. That was just before all the oil fields went dry. I remember my uncle telling me it was a sign from God that the end of time was near. I suppose he was right, Castro answered wryly. He recalled the chaos surrounding the oil shortages. Skirmishes between the exiled Arab states and the Western faction had broken out, weakening both. By 2048, Iran and its allies, referred to internationally as the Persian bloc, emerged as the overwhelming force in the region. We fled to the United States during the first days of the border war, Esther continued. We've been here ever since. Castro nodded. He didn't want to rush the woman as she told her family's story, 
but he was eager for details about what happened to the world since his departure. From the moment he had been awakened from stasis, he felt every answer he had received led to an endless stream of further unanswered questions. The general forced a smile. So, you must have been, what, 23, 24, when... When New York was destroyed, Esther finished for him. She cocked her head, gazed at Castro at an angle, as if humoring him, wondering if he really was who he appeared to be. Whatever was going on in the world, war, famine, we felt safe here. As if there was a shield of security around the United States that was impenetrable. We knew war was always near, but we never thought our leaders would let it affect us here, on these shores. Castro sensed judgment, condemnation. We failed you. I failed you, he thought to himself. He and the other delegates had failed not only Esther and her family, but the families of everyone, American, Israeli, Persian. Esther continued. One day, there was calm. We went to work, ate our meals, and played with our families, back when we had them. The old woman's eyes began to glisten, but her voice didn't waver. Then, just before dinner, there were sounds. Explosions. At first, far in the distance, but then, closer and closer. Sounds like rockets and attack drones overhead, like back in Israel before we fled. My family hid in our apartment's basement. The TV signals were all dead. No one knew what was happening. When we came out the next day, there was no electricity, no cellular, no internet. The streets were filled with people. Esther gazed around, as if seeing the memories replay themselves before her eyes. Rich, poor, every race. It was terrifying. Everyone was afraid. And everyone was expecting the worst. Was it the Persians? Castro knew the Western faction would never fire first. Surely he would have been informed. The general reflected, remembering old adversaries like Adnan Ganaya, the Iranian diplomat who thwarted the general's every overture for peace, the same man whose wife the general had loved and who had loved him in return. We didn't find out who was responsible for the attack until later, Esther explained. Reports were all over the place. Most information trickled in slowly from friends escaping the city or upstate. Sometimes the radios would work. Back then, we were told long-range missiles took out a power plant in upstate New York. Castro searched his memory, recalled from his many briefings the infrastructure and hard targets outside of Manhattan. Was it Ganae? That sounds right, Esther nodded. And another, across the border. There were other missiles as well across the country, well, all across the world. Castro stared ahead. Who fired? We were told the weapons fired on the power plants were of Chinese origin, but that strikes on the cities were Russian. No one ever said who sprayed the genetic gases over the countryside. A group called Nightshade took responsibility for the dirty bomb at the United Nations, but refused any connection with the other attacks. Esther gave an ironic grin. 
Strange that people were always very proud in accepting responsibility for the terrorism, but every faction denied launching these crippling acts of war. The terrorists all bragged of their visions, their terrible causes and purpose. The factions just railed against each other, denying everything and accusing everyone other than themselves. Something in her tone struck the general, something deep and piercing. She spoke with the cynical insight of someone who had been faced with terrible ordeals and come out the wiser for it. For a moment, Castro considered Esther as more than just a source of information on the past. He wondered what she was like as a younger woman, what interests and dreams she held before the catastrophic events she now described. The Western faction had the most comprehensive distant early warning systems in the world. Castro stood, savoring the ability to flex a simulacrum's legs in ways he could no longer do with his own. And our orbital platforms were generations ahead of even the fastest hypersonics. How did missiles make their way to the U.S. mainland? I don't know, Esther said. What I do know is that nothing was ever the same. At first, we were told not to leave our homes, not to go into the city. We waited for days, playing games to downplay the panic. We survived the bombs, then the decay of society. We survived the other survivors. Esther watched the fire between them turn to ash and smoke. Eventually, most of the seaboard cities were occupied by the military. We were displaced from our homes. What do you mean displaced? Esther placed her hands on her knees. Soon, she pushed herself up to face the general. What wasn't occupied by people there to help us was being destroyed by the same people. Castro turned his back to the old woman. Even in the worst doomsday scenarios, Israel and its allies predicted only a few targets on each coast of the continental United States could ever be destroyed. This was to be followed by a measured, fail-safe, tactical response. He had thought the United Nations would be the principal target. There must have been a breakdown at all levels of government to allow so many targets to be destroyed, so much devastation wrought. What about Washington? After the attacks on the United Nations in New York State, the president went into hiding, Esther said. She made a few announcements from her bunker. I think, well, a lot of people said they were pre-recorded. What were the announcements? Esther hesitated. You sure you don't remember any of this? She crossed her arms in front of her and squinted. Was this before or after you... died? Please, Esther, I need to hear this, Castro deflected. The president announced the explosions at that lab in Switzerland. What lab in Switzerland? CERN? I guess. I don't know a lot about that. Some people said it was terrorism. Others said it was some accident. What happened? Esther shook her head. I don't know. But not long after that, there was a joint announcement by the U.S. and Russian presidents saying that other priorities had limited America and Russia's ability to make necessary repairs on nuclear reactors around the world. The Russian president said that within 20 years, these leaks would kill anyone within a thousand miles. Castro was skeptical, wondering if this was accurate or disinformation. 
It was certainly one way to clear out wide zones of any occupation. People moved away from those areas, he stated matter-of-factly. That, or they were removed, Esther replied. Kasher was confused at how Esther moved from topic to topic which seemed unconnected in his mind. What did CERN have to do with the war? What happened to the president? To the government? I, I don't really know. No one really knows. What do you mean no one knows? Kasher was finding himself increasingly frustrated. It seemed that, like the survivors in the Phoenix Project, Esther seemed to have significant gaps in knowledge of the events which led to the fall of civilization, events which she had lived through. She, at least, had the excuse of being a mere civilian, struggling to survive in impossible times. In his mind, the Shadow Council and the leaders of the project had no such excuse for their ignorance. How could it be that the most critical of details, such as who attacked whom and why, were all forgotten less than fifty years afterwards? A pained expression seemed to shrink the old woman's face. Even after the TV system went back up, there was little official communication from the government to the people other than orders from the military and FEMA. There was no internet, no way for people to talk to one another. Over time, people came to expect, to, to demand less. After less than a decade, the government had splintered. We had horrific storms as well, bizarre weather. They said things were a bit better on the west coast for a while, but there was no way to move. And don't forget, those were the days people were first starting to change, to mutate on a large scale. Castro slowly nodded. He thought for a long moment, remembered his encounter with the mutants and madmen on Governor's Island. It was less than 24 hours earlier, but after hearing Esther's story, it felt like days. The mutant leader, the magistrate, he said something about drones depositing chaff. Yes, there were always a lot of drones around. I think those were initially to put out the fires without engaging those in the centers of destruction. There were so many aircraft in the area in those days. Chemicals were dumped everywhere. As if on cue, she coughed, then spit on the ground. That's another reason so many people left. The first summer was hot, painfully hot, and all those chemicals just lingered like a cloud. Some went south, others went west. I expect... I expect some people just curled up and died. Castro considered what the desolation was like, the struggle for survival. Benjamin was a hard man, but he suspected Esther had seen things even he couldn't immediately fathom felt compelled to say something comforting, to help these people, but what could he say or offer to someone who had lived through such times? Esther smiled broadly. I know who you are, General, what you were. Pale blue eyes seemed cold, close. Roth told the world you died in the attack on the UN, you and many others. She closed the space between them. I don't understand why, how you are here, now. Castro kept his mouth tight. He wondered if he should trust Esther with the truth of his mission, of the existence of the Phoenix Project. It's a long story, and one I may yet tell. But first, tell me more about Arthur Roth. John Bath was so exhausted, 
He couldn't sleep. He was hungry, but didn't want to eat. He was angry at the Phoenix Law Division, disgusted that the so-called Shadow Council rebranded themselves in an effort to sanitize actions they sanctioned. Despite all this, Bath couldn't help conclude he misjudged the Law Division's second-in-command, Major McGillicuddy, with whom he served in their mission to Earth's surface. In a building below the Hudson River, John saw the Major show mercy to spent and diseased scavengers. Later, when they learned John's roommate Mike and his girlfriend Mindy were injured in the altercation with Cuddy's subordinates, the Major was the first to show Bath a muted but still present kindness. Bath exhaled hard, trying to catch his breath. He saw no solutions, no hope, no escape. Just an ever-creeping anxiety. He wanted to hit out, but that was beneath him. He wanted to fight back, but he knew he was weak. He paced the narrow space of his quarters, halting to tap the button on his dresser. A drawer opened slowly. His fingers hovered over the drawer's contents, amber and gray-green pill bottles. John and Mike shared prescriptions for pain, antibiotics, and vitamins to enhance mental acuity, skin cell exfoliation, and regeneration. Also in the drawer were a variety of tonics and potions doled out to maintenance workers like his roommate for a small price, amphetamines distributed to overachieving academics like himself at no cost. John squeezed a bottle of tranquilizers in a shaky fist. He considered popping the top and tipping its contents back in his mouth. He could sleep for days. He could sleep forever. Or... Unpolished white gold in the drawer caught Bass' attention. How long had it been since he last held his mother's cherished St. Christopher medal? Months? More than a year? St. Christopher, patron saint of travelers. Searchers, explorers like John, Cuddy, and General Castro. John's fingers shook over his mother's medal. Then he snatched it up, traced it. He remembered his mother's fortitude and grace, the brilliant orange hair he inherited from her. Tears welled in his eyes. He thought of his father and wondered how a career military officer and bodyguard to the United Kingdom's ambassador could go from being among the Phoenix Project's most respected citizens to being accused of crimes, corruption. Then, of course, there were the rumors, the dream John always clung to, that his father wasn't exiled for those so-called crimes, but actually found an escape hatch away from the underground and to the world above. John had committed himself to finding out the truth about his father, finding the hatch, leading the citizens of the Phoenix Project to the surface. But now, having gone there himself, adventuring in robot form, was it even worth it? The Phoenix Project's citizens were safe, but subdued. If they knew about the dangers on the surface, would they want to leave the security? However monotonous it was, it was all they had ever known. Squeezing the metal in his palm, Bath's memory retreated back to his father. If Dermid Bath actually found an escape hatch to the surface, why didn't he come back for John and his mother? His mother. John remembered the beautiful woman after his father disappeared. She was fixed in his recollection as she was, not as the withered version of herself he rarely visited in the project center for retirees, the aged and infirm. John hated that place, 
where a cosmos of pills and drugs, some the same as those in the drawer before him, were meted out in greater doses to anesthetize once vibrant citizens like Caitlin Bath. These citizens, who were in great pain or worse, had grown so used to the pain, they could no longer differentiate symptom and treatment, fantasy or reality. Red mist came between Bath and his surroundings. Veins pulsed in his neck as he furiously tossed the drawers, the dresser, then the narrow compartment in which he lived. Books, pills, clothes scattered. John fell back against the wall that concealed stacked pull-out beds. Damn it! Bath cursed aloud as he slid down the wall. He sat on the floor, his head in his hands. John? A voice spoke nearby. He turned to see his student and confidant, Harumi Gale, standing just inside the room. I must be delirious. I didn't hear the door chime. When the young Asian woman smiled, her cheekbones seemed to turn bright plums. Oh, of course, you, you know the password. The door slid closed behind Harumi. She stepped into the room. I trust you weren't thinking about taking all of those. She pointed at the pill containers on the floor. Their contents in round pills and capsules spilled around her mentor. John gazed down, paused. For a moment, he felt calm, blank, a kind of peace he rarely experienced. Hmm. Not all of them. Don't joke, Harumi knelt beside him. She touched John's cheek with the back of her hand. You look awful. Let me help. John's face went blank, his eyes somewhere near, but not directly on Harumi. Talk to me. Harumi leaned close, their faces inches apart. Something's happening to me, Harumi. He was afraid to gaze into her violet eyes. It's like a logic problem I can't solve, a puzzle I can't complete. Maybe you don't have to, she consoled him. Ever since I've been a part of this, this work in the laboratory, each time I come back, nothing's the same. I'm not the same. John breathed hard, his face near Harumi's neck. Shh. Harumi cradled him against her. She stroked the back of his head. Am I not the same? She whispered something inaudible in his ear. He inhaled the sweet scent of her soap, cherry blossoms. How, John wondered, did she acquire something so exotic to this place and so familiar to him? Harumi kissed him. Or was it the other way around? A convulsion raced through John, and he collapsed in Harumi's arms. Time and sensitivity distorted similar to when Bath's consciousness was transmitted through the green stream into his simulacrum. He saw himself clinging to Harumi, felt a deep longing, but was unsure if what he saw or felt was real. Harumi awoke to the sound of the door chime. She discreetly slid out from under the sheets in John's hideaway bed. She had little time to return Bath's journals to their place in the hidden lockbox behind the professor's desk. These were journals she helped Gabriel Princip, a member of the Phoenix Law Division, lift from John's quarters. Guilt was a sentiment Harumi rarely felt. In this case, she allowed it, reassuring herself that while she was unable to trust Princip, 
they both worked towards the goal of triggering something in John. Both sought to convince him to side with the dissidents in the Phoenix Project. Harumi rushed to the door and depressed the button to see who was outside the room. A green and black image of a law enforcement officer appeared there. The impressive, dark-skinned man outside pressed the doorbell once again. Then, Major Leonard McGillicuddy slowly glanced up at the camera overhead. Behind Harumi, John roused in the bed. John, it's law enforcement. I think it's that officer you've been working with. Dr. Bath rolled over. He ran his arm across the cold sheet, pulled a handful of fabric in his hand. He glanced at Harumi, saw she wore only a camisole and underwear. John remembered little of what happened. He felt he betrayed himself. If he and Harumi made love, John would have liked to remember it. Let him in. But John... Harumi started to protest, then did as instructed. Cuddy, John spoke plainly and sat upright. Something I can help you with? The Major looked over Harumi Gale, showing indifference to her state of dress, or lack thereof. He shot Bath a hard look. You've been avoiding me. No, I haven't. Save it. Cuddy waved a hand in the air. Look, I'm... I'm sorry about your friend and his... Is that what you came here for? Bath rolled out of the bed. He pulled on his white-colored shirt and frayed khaki pants, as much a uniform as Cuddy's. Not hardly. Cuddy sidestepped Harumi and walked to the center of the room. I've been trying to get a hold of you. We've got a situation. John turned, ran a hand through his unkempt hair. We? Cuddy looked back at Harumi, then at Bath. I need you to come with me, he moderated his deep voice. Please. Bath agreed reluctantly. Cuddy didn't look at Harumi as he walked out of the apartment portal. He had a practiced manner about him that suggested she was insignificant to him. Before Harumi could mutter some insult to the law enforcement officer's back, John stopped her. He looked at the bed, then back at his former student. We should talk about this. John's confusion was evident in his voice. But you don't want to. No, John shook his head. A fine line formed between his green eyes. I do, he said, unconvincingly. But not if you, you know, if, if you don't want to. I'm fine, Harumi smiled. And you're needed elsewhere. John couldn't hide his frustration. Damn it! You always have to have control, don't you? You... He looked back at the door, wondering if Cuddy heard them from outside. You trained me well. Harumi was calm. She took his hand in hers and kissed his knuckles. Now, go. John looked down at the beautiful young woman. He stared at the floor wondering what he had done, wondering if anything would ever be the same between them again. Did it matter? Esther spoke reverentially and at length of Arthur Roth as if he was some folk hero. Benjamin smiled, amused to hear of the accomplishments of the young man who had been his attaché and assistant. He was not at the United Nations during the first attacks, Esther said, then interrupted herself. He was here, in Brooklyn. In the years that followed, 
he became instrumental in trying to establish some semblance of safety and order. Castro grinned. Already had a gift at being able to work with anybody. He said he learned from you. The general shrugged off the comment. I may have given him a tip or two, but he was a natural. Some people just have that innate charisma, a gravitas well beyond their years. When he spoke, people listened. <laughs> it didn't hurt that he was a genius, either. I always knew he had a very bright future. Esther smiled, remembering the man, her eyes widening as if she saw Roth in the tent with them. What happened to him? Castro finally asked. He united non-profit clubs and charitable organizations throughout the five boroughs. The unions, Masonic organizations, the Urban League. Esther described Roth's efforts as if they were some simple task. He helped them work with what was left of law enforcement and the government to serve the elderly and the children, relocate them away from the radiation and the escalating violence. Things were manageable for a while, I suppose, but they didn't get much better. People gave in to fear, resentment, fell back on mysticism. What do you mean? Esther shrugged. In times of crisis, people will cling to anything that gives them hope, especially if they think it's something they discovered for themselves. You'll see it in every tent city or enclave from here to the deep south, I suppose. Scavengers and clans practicing hybrids of Kabbalah, Egyptian magic, Christian Gnosticism. Everyone's looking for a miracle. A prophet, an escape. And what about Artie? Castro asked. Where is Roth? Esther stood next to the general, her arms held out. Who knows, she said, a hint of resentment in her voice. They ran Arthur and his legion out. Don't know where. Others knew him better than... Well, better than us. Castro thought for a long moment. He had been content to explore Brooklyn and Manhattan Island for himself. Now... He wondered if he, Cuddy, and Bath were prepared for what they might face there. Why not move back to the city, he asked. Back to your homes. No electricity. No running water. Sewage backed up. Disease. More than 40 years of looting. Murder. Bad memories. No, there's nothing for us there. What about Manhattan? It's a war zone. Mutants, Morlocks, Rockheads, not the kind of place to raise a family. Morlocks. Castro said the word he had heard before, that description he remembered from fantasy literature. A people who lived in a subterranean world deprived of light and life. What about food? What do you do for water? Esther paced a few feet, then waved for the general to follow her outside. Castro stood at the old woman's elbow as they walked through tents, structures of wood, and bent aluminum. Esther stopped walking and pointed at a stack of steel transportation compartments. We can't drink the water in the river. Scientists say poison in the rain and earth is responsible for the mutations. But people have to survive. We take on our chances. We built the water reclamator, and we have a team that works around the clock to boil and purify the water distill the impurities best we can, test the toxicity. Castro paused, realizing the process was probably not entirely unlike what those in the Phoenix Project had become accustomed to doing to make potable water. And food? Esther bobbed her head from side to side. Mostly reclaimed and stale dried goods, 
whatever we can scavenge or trade. We have hunting parties that go looking for animals. What we can eat, we make last, store, and preserve. Castro pointed towards the Hudson River. But aren't you afraid the animals that drink from the river or rainwater might be contaminated? Surely. But unless you can survive off plants, nuts, and the occasional fruit, you take your chances, Castro finished for her. She nodded. Benjamin watched the men and women of the tent city. Their ages varied, ranging from young adults to the elderly. None were visibly malformed or mutated. He remembered when he was on Governor's Island. The magistrate contended that regular doses of pharmaceuticals prescribed for mental illness protected the population exposed to toxic chemicals and radiation. Esther suggested the use of pioneer technology in moderation save the survivors and scavengers. Castro wished Cuddy and Bath were there. Surely the professor would be inspired by the existence of this self-sufficient communal society. The academic would have some explanation for their survival. Cuddy would be appalled at what they were forced to endure, but heartened that they had overcome the odds. He considered his mission, to determine if the Phoenix Project could bring life and civilization back to the surface. But life was here, and in fits and starts, it seemed some semblance of society clung to life as well. What exactly could the Phoenix Project offer these people that they could not provide for themselves? The truth was that if the inhabitants of the underground project were transported to the service today, they would have more to learn from Esther and her people than the other way around. Castro turned to Esther. You seem content here. We have community. The world is not a safe place, but here we are, and we will go on. Castro glanced down at her, then at the Brooklyn Bridge, the gray skyline. Looks like rain. And we need it, too. She glanced around absentmindedly as if she had misplaced something. I need your help, Esther. I need to get across the bridge. The old woman waved, suggesting the general follow her. Come with me. There are men who recently joined us who I think may be able to help you find safe passage to the other side. Benjamin nodded. He still didn't have the answers he needed and he didn't honestly know exactly where his mind stood on either these survivors or those in the Phoenix Project. He knew neither represented the future he would hope to see restored to mankind. Humanity deserved better than to live as either scavengers scraping out a living in a poisoned land, or as moles crawling in concrete tunnels, waiting for a better tomorrow. One way or another, Castro knew he had to find a way to restore the civilization whose destruction he, and so many others, shared the blame for. In the lift, Major McGillicuddy resisted saying anything to the professor. Cuddy saw from Bath's distant expression, John wasn't just deep in thought. He was thoroughly confused. The lift doors opened. Except for a few personnel in the corridor, Cuddy and Bath were mostly alone on their way to the laboratory. Cuddy turned to John and grinned. First time? What? Bath's white skin seemed somehow paler. Sorry, I was just trying to cut the tension. That was stupid. From the looks of things, it seemed... complicated. Bath shrugged. He could tell his fellow explorer was trying to reach out to him. He appreciated the gesture, but he was currently incapable of processing everything that had transpired in the past few days. 
Cuddy motioned to John. Hey, listen. I just wanted to let you know. What happened with your roommate and his girlfriend? Cuddy swallowed hard, holding back his own frustration over the situation. Phoenix Council considers it closed. I assure you, John, I don't. Bath hesitated a long moment. He wanted to trust Cuddy. He fought the instinct that the Major was another meaningless overture by those in power. It wasn't right. Bath's voice was dull, emotionless. You're damn right it wasn't. Cuddy nodded in agreement, unable to say much more, to explain to John how his arrogant lieutenant and impressionable corporal claimed they had approval to rouse citizens in the squalor. Worse to Cuddy was that Lieutenant Baker and Corporal Reed suggested they took action on behalf of Cuddy's mentor, Colonel Dana Marsh, to prevent others from knowing the colonel was slipping, losing her faculties, losing her ability to make command decisions. Well, what are you going to do about it? Bath asked, his green eyes piercing. Whatever I can. Bath nodded, then turned from Cuddy and proceeded down the ramp to the lab. Up ahead, Cuddy and Bath saw Devenu and Ganaya. Danielle's golden hair was tied behind her head. Her usually fashionable, form-fitting attire seemed distressed. What is it? Cuddy asked Ganaya, who looked afraid. Before the doctor could respond, Devenu interjected. She's locked herself in there. Who? Cuddy asked. Chang? Ganaya nodded. The lab is at full power and somehow exceeding normal efficiency. Bath turned to Cuddy. General, you think? Damn it, Donna. Devenu stood back from the control panel. Devenu was more frustrated than anyone had ever seen her. She turned to Cuddy. The vault door is not accepting my command codes. Can you use your security override? Ellie doesn't have authority over the lab, Cuddy replied. Only the council and the central processor, Bath said, finishing for them. From outside the door, Devenu, Ganaya, Cuddy, and Bath heard the sound of buzzing machinery, the whir and hum of heavy power supplies in the laboratory. Danielle turned to the others, her expression hard, her posture deflated. What the hell is she doing? Aftermath, a fire pit creative group production, based on a story created by Rhett Davis, with characters created by Warren Davis, Willem DeGrieff, and Cole Hoopengarner. Written by Warren Davis and Willem DeGrieff, with Cole Hoopengarner. Narrated and produced by Cole Hoopengarner, with Warren Davis. Music composed by Warren Davis, and video production by Willem DeGrieff. Links for the sound effects used in Aftermath can be found in each episode's description. Aftermath and its story, characters, and music are copyright 2020 by Firepit Creative Group. <laughs>